Hey guys, if you want updates on our latest episodes, then be sure to subscribe to the Film Colossus podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, if you'd like to support the show and hear episodes ad-free, then subscribe to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash filmcolossus. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My name is Chris Lambert. And my name is Travis Bean. And on today's episode, we're discussing the quiet, the hypnotic, the enigmatic drive. Nicholas Winding Refn's breakout film is seemingly simple, yet says so much about loneliness, about Hollywood, about the human condition. Join us as we discuss our extensive history with Drive and examine the most profound aspects of this great film. Travis, you know, it's been a long time since I've watched Drive Mm. and I had a lot of emotions, a lot of emotions going into this and they relate to you. Okay. I, I, Look, this is both of our show. We have equal shares in what's going on here. 50-50 all the way through. We hold hands the entire time we record one of these episodes. Like, (laughs) we're in sync. Um, But I will say that I think, for the most part, we've covered a lot of Chris movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Because because a lot of times in the show, we just cover movies that are really confusing, have these, like, winding plots, a lot to understand. Like, that's right up your alley. Um, Not always my thing. Um, But Drive, like... This to me, this is a Travis movie. <laughs> it felt as as I was watching, I was just like, oh, Travis loves this. Travis loves this. I do. I do love it. Well, I was thinking specifically because this movie came out wide release, not the limited release, but it's wide release September 19th of 2011. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to give us some backstory here. Please do. So in June of 2011, I decided I wanted to write about movies and (laughs) I made a website called Modigliani Movie Inquiries. Uh, Yes, you did. Horrible title, but I was all about it at the time. I don't know. I think it's better than Film Colossus. Right. It just rolls off the tongue. The eyes, the I sounds (laughs) or the E sounds. But, a lot of vowels in that title. Yeah, that's what I, like I actively went for that. <laughs> that was <laughs> the rhythm is going to try. Okay, people. I get you. Uh, so I start writing these rambling review pieces that are also narrative deconstructions, and mm-hmm. uh, I cover a lot of movies, and none are doing all that well. <laughs> and then I wrote about Drive. Mm-hmm. And it's the first one that kind of started to get picked up. I went from, you know, maybe having 10 to 5 page views or 0 to 5 page views a day to suddenly having 50 page views a day and mm-hmm. had a 100 page view day. And I was really excited. And it was all about the mask and why he put on the the yeah. stunt mask and all of that. Was it your first article, like, asking a question and answering it? Yeah, it was essentially the first thematic explanation article or plot point explanation article. Impetus of Film Colossus. It's the first one that got picked up by Google. 
and started having some of that Google traffic. And I think, you know, we've been on an SEO kick recently, Mm -hmm. uh, may have caused future articles to be seen just a little, a little more easy, uh, easily. And you know what came out two weeks after drive? 50, 50, 50, 50, 50. Hell yeah. And for those, (laughs) yeah, for those who don't know, Travis and I first connected because we both wrote about Rex Reed's review of the movie 50, 50. It was such a painstaking, horrible, egregious review. Uh, and we both happened to write about it and Travis found my article, shared his article and it was just kind of this. Let's be, let's be lifelong friends. Yeah. We should really talk more if we're both care this <laughs> By the much way, about this thing. I think that's a really good idea and I hope no one steals this. Uh, so our dozens of listeners out there don't steal this, but I think it would be great to have a website where you just tear into terrible movie reviews. <laughs> it's... It, until until we are the ones getting torn into <laughs> i would love that i would love for somebody to do that to me rip me to shreds but absolutely I, that's kind of what i was doing for a little bit yeah in in the early modigliani days there were a number of articles where i found like a critic's take and it was just all in on it uh, oh, yeah. like wesley morris had one there was oh, one yeah. on i think it was slant about the movie <laughs> beautiful creatures or something oh that's right the uh, Callum marsh he yeah he was uh he was an interesting one at slant yeah those were like the big three that i remember oh and mick lasalle for the san francisco chronicle uh <laughs> the, those Heavy were the hitters. four yeah um but i like to think that writing about drive is what made the 50 50 article a little more googleable and what ended oh, up wow us talking so I credit drive as kind of the, the big bang of everything that we're wow. doing now. Yeah. It drive came out in theaters and from there it was like a giant spark, a flash of light spraying across the country <laughs> and it connected us. You know, that that's how we were born. That's that's it. That's Film the origin story. owes itself to drive. Yeah, which is crazy. And I uh, I hated the movie. When I remember I this. Saw it. Yeah, that was um. I, I, when I think of like the quintessential difference between our taste, Drive is a movie that pops into my head. At least how you viewed it back then. Yeah. Be- I, yes. I don't know how you feel about it now, but I just I, I've always associated like when I watch this movie and think about everything I love about it, I am also sort of thinking in the back of my head like, oh yeah, I bet Chris does not like this. <laughs> I don't know what bothered me so much back then because I saw it when I was in Asheville. I was living in Asheville. I went to this movie theater. There was like six people in the theater in total. And by <laughs> the end of the movie, we were all laughing out loud at the movie. <laughs> I and... think that's totally fine with this movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah. On second viewing, it, it was it so bad. Like the, some of the scenes that I remember being is just like, what were they thinking? I'm like, what was I <laughs> What was I thinking? Uh, specifically, there's that moment in the hotel room uh, after he beats down the guys that break in to try to take him out and mm-hmm. take the money. And he's covered in blood and he yep. just slowly leans back behind the door frame. That's art right there. And I remember just losing my shit being like, why would you just so cheesy and dumb and outrageous and silly? And now I'm just like, that's fine. That's, that's art. It's completely fine. <laughs> that's my answer to everything. Any, If you have any complaints today, I'm just going to be like, that's art, Chris. 
that's art just you hate art you love math <laughs> I, I knew that about you but hey i'm just gonna state the facts <laughs> um so that was my that was my experience was just i had no idea about nicholas winding refn going in <laughs> i didn't the either and so i just remember hearing really good things about drive i don't think i really knew that much about ryan gosling at that point either aside from gosh obviously uh the notebook sure you knew he was in the notebook crazy stupid love had that happened yet i think that came out after drive did it yeah it probably did so yeah i'm sitting here thinking like i can look through his, his filmography really quick but i don't know if i knew oh no it came out the same year yeah oh, the year of ryan gosling you know what no i was as a as a little you know indie kid back in the day that was getting into movies and liked all the indie movies like i was really in the half nelson um i really liked blue valentine and i really liked lars and the real girl so i did have some exposure to him i knew of him because i remember when fracture and lars and the real girl came out i didn't see either of them but yeah, i remember fracture. the trailers and being like oh they're pushing that they're pushing the the notebook guy <laughs> that guy and then blue valentine came out when i was working at uh family video and yeah. i always wanted to watch it but never did mm, not a big fan of that movie actually upon no, the second the, watch actually crazy stupid love came out july 29th so it, oh wow it came out just before so i had watched that because i remember writing about that huh hmm. but, it was the year of ryan gosling then and it's the year of ryan gosling now yeah because then ides of march came out right oh wow that guy was on a roll yeah, and that was like the actual next big movie for Modigliani. <laughs> so you owe a lot to Ryan Gosling. Yeah, there was a. I owe a lot to Ryan Gosling. Drive and then and then Barbie of March, and then Barbie. Look at this guy. I feel like <laughs> you you might secretly be a Ryan Gosling expert. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's an argument to be made. I've seen a lot of these, but I don't know his early stuff all that well at all i've seen I, most um, of the, the newer stuff i've seen murder by numbers actually i watched it in a hotel room once that one's pretty nuts is that sandra mm. Bullock? yes it is <laughs> Bullock. <laughs> yeah um and of course he's in remember the titans got that uh is that is he the one with the long flowy hair i barely know remember the Titans. Oh, whatever somebody will correct me on that but i think he might have long flowy hair in that and then of course i saw fracture <laughs> Yeah, wow. I, I had seen a lot up to that point, actually. <laughs> In my head, I was like, I bet I hadn't seen any of that. I've, I've seen half of his filmography. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I saw this back when it came out in theaters, too. And I, I got to say, I've always had a very special relationship with this movie. I didn't know about Nicholas Winding Refn going in and probably didn't visit his movies until a few years later. Uh probably when it became friends with our mutual friend Jordan C. Johnson uh, although I think he just goes by Jordan Johnson at this point <laughs> and uh, I, I knew he was really into him I was like alright I gotta check out this guy and I really I love his style like I, I love the mood and tone he paints I feel like it so perfectly captures the characters and what they're going through and, and allows the their experiences to like gain weight and feel palpable like feel like they're coming through the screen so i've always really loved his style and i feel like drive is you know it's kind of the 
high point in quotes in the sense that like it really does that really well like it's it's a movie that's all about mood um i think there are better nicholas winding reffin movies but um i do think drive was kind of a moment where he found the style that he's kind of kept going since then through like the neon demon and um only god forgives and this in his tv shows like too old to die young um i i've always i've just really enjoyed experiencing him in in this arena um and and drive i remember seeing it with my ex-girlfriend now wife uh (laughs) she i remember at the time we just like thought it was so cool and and strange like all these scenes of like ryan gosling and carrie mulligan just staring at each other for like 60 seconds and like nothing's happening we're just like this is so weird but like weird in a cool way we really enjoyed it and it's just a bit of movie we've revisited several times in the past 12 years um i don't know how many times i've watched it maybe you know like seven or eight or something like that it feels like a movie we watch like every year or like every year and a half or something uh so watching it again yesterday i i feel like my experience with it grows stronger each time i Every time I watch it, I kind of settle into what it's doing a little bit more and uh, just get a sense of what it's going for and and the overall, I guess, just the message, you know, like what it's ultimately saying. I, I love experiencing it each time. Yeah. I uh, Speaking of Winding Refn, I had one experience with him. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> he uh, came to Austin to promote the Neon Demon, and I get to be part of a little round table press conversation with him at a hotel on south congress so it's him holding court in this room (laughs) and we're all sitting in a circle around him and uh people get to ask a question one by one and i had recently watched only god forgives and then watched the neon demon and one of the things that stood out to me was that in only god forgives you have blue light and red light as these very prominent visual motifs and then sure. Neon Demon, you also have blue lights and red lights being very visual, uh, or very prominent visual motifs. And I was really prepared to dive in <laughs> on it. And I'm I'm planning this question of asking about the connection between them, if it's if it's any kind of thematic meaning, if it's just a stylistic. Like, I really thought I was gonna blow his mind he'd be like you get Mm. it do you want to be best friends like what's what's the deal (laughs) just you know my only child daydreams yeah and uh when i asked the question i was like i noticed and i noticed and he just kind of looked at me and he goes i'm colorblind so the red and blue lights are just because that's part of the color spectrum that's you know appeals to me and i was like (laughs) Oh, <laughs> okay. I, I, there was just somebody just asked on Twitter, like, how often is a story just a story and we just are assigning deeper meaning to things? And that was one of those moments where it was just as often as I as I like to feel I can tell the difference between <laughs> those moments. That was one that was just like a reminder of like, nope, smack. Well, I. I, I, I feel like we're already kind of diving into the way we watch movies and each of us. And to me, when hearing Nicholas Winding Riffin say that, like to you, you hear that and think like, oh, like there was nothing there. And to me, like yeah. he said everything <laughs> like that makes total sense to me that 
it's not, there is no concrete meaning to it. There's not something you can like look at and point to and be like, oh, this means that. Like to me, this guy just paints moods, feels, and allows characters to kind of steep in that and exist in that. And that's what shapes our experiences of the movie. That's what pulls us into a certain idea or mood. And that's how we really dig into what the movie's about and trying to say. Uh, that's like a really artsy fartsy head in the clouds answer because then it's like, well, what is like it, the answer becomes very subjective to like what the movie's doing. But I, I guess I feel that's what's that's the beauty of a Nicholas Winding Refn movie is like it's so open ended and so ambiguous and and doesn't explain itself in a way that it it just kind of allows you to nestle in next to it and like figure it out, you know? Well, what you just described is La Mort de Arthur. <laughs> I have no, I do not have a good French accent, but that's okay. Uh, the death of the author essay yeah. that said that criticism relying specifically on authorial intent in author biography is like a lackluster way of analyzing a work. Mm-hmm. And that's been interpreted uh, multiple ways. I think the original was just like each individual's reading or relationship with the work is all that's there. So right. it's putting some of that primacy on if you feel that it relates to this thing for you and that's what you're getting out of it, great. And then others have still used it in like the critical scholarly way of saying like, yeah, you know, he might say that he had no intent with it or it's just because... um he has colorblindness, but that doesn't mean that there's not some subconscious application and how For he's sure. utilizing it or choosing to utilize it that we can't still ascribe a meaning to it or make an argument for a meaning from it. Mm-hmm. So even though he was like, no, and I was like, okay, there's just <laughs> still like, I think that argument to be made of, well, it still exists in the film and how is it being right. utilized? When is it being utilized? Can we start mm-hmm. to make an argument for an interpretation? Oh still, yeah, for sure. It feels good. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I, I told, I agree with that. Like, I think you're right about that, and that's why we do what we do at Film Colossus to like help make something like less abstract in a way, and uh, kind of just come together and fit together a little better, and at least open a path for you to like be like okay I, I see that it's doing this like now i can apply my own meaning to it um but also i guess i'm almost saying like on a on a deeper level as much as i like doing this for film classes like i really love when i don't get what a movie's doing um i i'm okay with that i'm okay with just having like a feeling 
that's being extracted by a movie and having like for a movie to perf- affect you profoundly it, it isn't usually when i think about the movies i absolutely love it isn't usually because like oh like i made these things connect and make sense it's because like it has some strange impact on me it has this really strange aura that i've never seen before like it it kind of envelops me and and sends me to this weird place and in that weird place is where i suddenly make this connection to a movie that just can't really be explained (laughs) and can't really be written down and thought out in a way that we do on film colossus um so that's again that's that's why i love this movie so much is i i always get that feeling from it like i I wrote the movie guide to this movie like i did try to explain everything but on some level like i feel like i could never truly describe how this movie makes me feel like there's something deeper more special about it i i get that and yeah to to, uh i guess get right to it i did really enjoy it the second time nice so, so this is your second time. Yeah, it's second time watching it, and wow. I no longer dislike it. It is now <laughs> a movie that I like. It's probably your favorite Nicholas Winding Refn movie. Actually, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're a big fan. Uh, I didn't like Only God Forgives. Um, there are ideas in there that I like and scenes that I like, but I was pretty annoyed with the story direction, and I think it was the opposite with Drive where I had liked, I feel like the story is kind of a a tested archetype and it's Refn putting his style and Refn-ness into it. Uh, so I didn't mind the shell. It was just, I wasn't on board with some of the stylistic choices, but now I'm fine with it. Only God forgives. I don't know if I'll have that same reversal. Uh, Neon Demon, I enjoyed, uh, especially like the last five minutes but it felt yeah the eyeballs it felt um just like a little less i don't know maybe that's another one that i need to go back and it's definitely like compared to drive it makes drive seem kind of like a simple normal movie (laughs) yeah it's really out there and bizarre and like way more neon you know it's right in the title like it's just much more of a mood yeah, very moody. Um, and Drive, okay, I texted Travis before we started the episode. I was like, I have a hot take. Yeah. I'm curious to see how you feel. Uh, I feel like Drive is the same kind of story or very similar to Mulholland Drive. Yeah, totally. Uh, in that it's the a version of the death of the Hollywood dream. And about this person's experience in Hollywood and the dynamics of having this potential and opportunity for this life that you want to live and seeing the reality of this world crush it. Mm. Yeah, Um, I would be interested to dig into the specifics of that, specifics of that. But um, I I think generally, I, I totally agree. And the movie's really leaning into it heavily from the get-go with him like on the movie set you know there's like the shot of the actor in the mirror and then it goes around the mirror and shows ryan Gosling like putting on the mask that's supposed to be him and the guy (laughs) like it's very pointed at the beginning in a way i'm noting this and i really noticed it at this viewing especially because i noticed that as well and like started being like okay like this movie's like doing this and 
I, I feel like it's so overt in that moment in a way that it's not really in the rest of the movie. In a way, I appreciate it. I, I would be annoyed if it was completely overt, like all the Hollywood stuff the whole time. But it's set up so heavily in that moment that like, I found it kind of funny <laughs> that it was just so pointed, only for the movie to not ever pointedly address the whole Hollywood thing ever again in that way, um, other than when he puts the mask back on. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. There's definitely something there, and a, a lot of it has to do with, you know, I, I think, was it in the last episode or two episodes ago? We talked about and Drive, and I guess I could look at what movies we've covered lately so I could remember. <laughs> oh, Vanilla Sky. I bet it was Vanilla Sky. Just like when you have dueling personas, you know, mm-hmm. um, when you're trying to figure out like who you are, you're trying to distinguish between fantasy and reality. Vanilla Sky does that. and Drive does that. Perfect Blue did that. We've covered a lot of movies that touched in that arena. And yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Drive is is definitely tiptoeing down that road. Yeah, it's the most grounded of them in that way, sure. uh, where it's it's not as uh, fantastic as Perfect Blue or sci-fi as Vanilla Sky uh, or fantastic, surreal as Mulholland Drive. So it has to make its arguments in a lot more of a grounded terms or metaphoric mm-hmm. terms in a way. And I think it does that by also including the fairy tale aspect of the scorpion and the frog and mm-hmm. by having that uh symbolism established that he's the scorpion and you have this fairy tale element it almost makes the movie itself this grounded fairy tale for the hollywood experience right um i really think of uh gosling as the upcoming actor brian cranston as a director or agent, I guess, and then uh, why am I forgetting the the villain? Um, Bernie Albert Brooks, yeah, yeah, Bernie as the producer, and that's that the Hollywood good. dynamic playing out. The producer like telling the director how it's going to go. The director has a project in mind that he's trying to get off the ground, but is it able to execute on it? It's the vision's thrown off. He keeps complicating it, and then you have the actor who this was going to be the big break for him. And instead it turns into like an absolute shit show. And then it becomes almost like a Hollywood revenge story of the actor getting to like tear down the producer and tear down the studio in some ways. Yeah. Um, The system behind it. It's like the, the individual artist rising up against the system, which is kind of cool to me. It's definitely a part of the story. I mean, such a huge part of this movie is the search for identity that the driver has mm-hmm. and understanding who he is and where he wants to go with his life. I mean, that that song, A Real Hero, plays two times in the movie. And the lyrics of the song are depicting this person who commits these heroic acts and... Um, is able to view themselves as a real hero, you know, trying to elevate themselves in a way. So that's definitely part of this whole Hollywood angle that the driver is trying to envision himself as someone bigger and better than who he is, which currently who he is, is this guy who pulls off heists for bad people. But all of a sudden he find love, he finds love through Irene and Benicio and he has any, he catches a glimpse of like normalcy 
of like the kind of life he could be leading and to become that person to ensure that he can be there for them and get them away from harm. He keeps elevating himself and gets sucked into this like crazy crime world where he has to like defend them and kill people and hunt people down. It, it's all part of this. It, like you said, it's very grounded. Like it's, it never goes to the crazy places Mulholland Drive does. Mulholland Drive, the whole movie's a dream and this woman dreaming of a better life. Uh, that doesn't happen in Drive, but it kind of is happening at the same time. Like it's happening yeah. in real time. He he's living out this this movie he wants to be living. You know. Yeah, you could view all of his crime stuff as essentially the equivalent to Hollywood stuff. Like each yeah. driving gig is an acting gig. Uh, like he's doing these little independent things, waiting for the big like acting shots. Yeah, and finally gets noticed in the opportunity but things start going sideways and it's like the opportunity he would have to have a life that's built on the Hollywood stuff. It just can't come together because the one's interfering with the other. And, you know, somebody listening might not like the specifics of that interpretation. You could make it a lot more general and just see that tension between the things you're doing to try to earn a life that gives you like normalcy and meaning and makes you feel human compared to the thing that you're doing for money that in some ways dehumanizes you, whatever that is. (laughs) And that tension between are the sacrifices you're making in pursuit of that thing worth it if it costs you the other thing that you want. Yeah, I agree. There's no need to make it that specific. Like you totally can go down that road. And and I think the whole argument of whether or not it is that specific or not, like to me, doesn't even really matter because the reason we're even going down this road in the first place is because the movie set in L.A. And there are tons of movies set in Los Angeles that use this formula. We've already talked about Mahal and Drive, even something like Inherent Vice, like, okay, that's not a parallel metaphor for you know being in the movies or anything but that movie is constantly shaped by la and by california and this whole world this whole crazy world that exists parallel to everything going on in the movie um i I feel like that's how i view drive like you know when you see him putting on the mask and being a stunt driver and then putting on that mask again to kill a guy like it's all it's all born from Hollywood. It doesn't have to be like a metaphor for Hollywood, but it's constantly informed by Hollywood. Yeah. Though I would still prefer the, (laughs) of course you would. Yeah. The meaning that it is Hollywood, but I, yeah, zooming out just a little bit more and looking at the informed by, or the way in which the story changes. If you just change the setting, um, the beats stay the same, the tensions stay the same. Totally. But a change in setting uh, can shift just like the mood, the interpretation in that way, while keeping the overall story. Even something like you had mentioned, Inherent Vice, it had me thinking of L.A. Confidential, Mm -hmm. which I think is similar in the tensions of you want to try to live one life, but you're part of this world that just doesn't let you do that. How do you get to be a good cop? in los angeles Mm -hmm. with all the things that are going on and it touches somewhat on the film industry and the hollywood industry it's maybe not the main point 
but you can see the way in which that aspect informs the movie. I, I think one thing I really noticed in this movie, uh, in this viewing, is the use of Los Angeles outside of all of the Hollywood stuff and just how it exists in the background and as a setting and as this world that really envelops them and really becomes because I think a huge part of this movie and a, and a big reason I've grown attached to it over the years is like it's called Drive, which is such like a plain title like that. It doesn't mean anything yet means everything at the same time. Like it could be like the drive you have in life. Um, I just think it's funny that it's just called drive. <laughs> like it's not even called driving or like the driver. It's just drive. Like it's so nondescript in a way that I think perfectly matches the mood of this movie. And it really is just about like a drive. And, you know, this driver, he's constantly trying to control his surroundings. He's very meticulous about his heist missions. He has these rules. Um, he doesn't want to get too close. Uh, it, it's it's all informed by somebody who likes the comfort of the moment. And he's most comfortable when he drives. Like when he just goes out for a drive and when he's driving around the streets of L.A., he's always just contemplating and reflecting and never saying anything. Even when Irene's in the car with him, like he's not saying anything. Like they're just sitting there together and he's finally sharing this moment with somebody. Um, I love how LA kind of presents for what, I mean, I've, I've never even been to LA, <laughs> but oh, I have, I, you and I yes, went, you have. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we went together. <laughs> I, I meant, I almost mean like, I feel like I didn't. Yeah. We weren't necessarily like in downtown we at work. LA. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, going to downtown LA and like experiencing that night, like the, the kind of like dreamlike vision I have of LA probably just because of like Mulholland Drive or something, you know, uh, I really, I, I, I feel like you feel it in this movie. Like you feel him as he's driving around at night and kind of alone and detached from everybody in the city where like, you know, everybody thinks about themselves and it's just like looking out for themselves and trying to climb up the ladder and everything. It's, uh, I just think that sense of reflection is so palpable because of the driving and because of the setting and, and where it never really seems like he's going anywhere. He's just going and he's just taking these moments to have quietness. Like, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a movie utilize quietness so well. It, <laughs> it really, it is a mood and, I've never thought about the title. <laughs> I've yeah. never like outside of the fact that he drives. Yeah. I've never thought about as you were saying the kind of idea of what drives you or even it being more of a statement. Like uh -huh. at the end of the movie he drives away. And yeah. you can kind of almost view it as at the end he just has to drive off from everything. Perfect. So there's such a multitude of meanings that the title has in relation to the character and what we see in the film, but just also the way in which you can apply it. That's pretty cool. And just, <laughs> you mentioned going for a drive. It makes me think of when they go through the Los Angeles river and are mm -hmm. just driving in that concrete because it was so, I think any fan of movies, when they see that one of the first things they think of is Terminator two. Yeah, And all these action movies that have had scenes driving in the L.A. River uh, in that concrete waterway. So just to have Refn go that route, but it be such a calm, kind, sweet, 
adventurous version of it rather than the action-packed thrill ride with explosions and chase sequences that was a nice twist on it mm-hmm. uh, that i i enjoyed you just get to see kind of more the the weird beauty of it yeah it, it's funny when you started going down that road of like oh when you see the la river we all think of and you said the movie i did not think you were gonna say oh <laughs> i always think of greece i jeez. That was the first thing I thought of when I saw it. I was like, oh, man, I need to watch Grease. I saw Grease in high school. (laughs) You don't remember the race? No, it was. uh, No, I had other things going on. (laughs) (laughs) Then watching Grease again. Yeah, we put it on. But uh, yeah, I've uh, I've never seen. Like, I remember some of the movie, but I don't remember all the movie. Yeah, Yeah. Um. But anyway, about this, and that's, you know, a big parallel to that, that whole thought about, of like driving and reflecting. I think what I noticed the most about this movie this time, and I've probably thought about this before, but this time again, very palpable is just the sense of loneliness going on in the movie and just how lonely all of these characters are (laughs) just like how much, how desperately they crave like somebody in their life that can give them exactly what they need to take them out of like whatever shit they're in and get somewhere better. Everybody's really experiencing that. And the driver the most, like he's just, I think he's somebody who he puts on a face, you know, he's cool, calm and collected. He gets anything done, but all of a sudden Irene and Benicio, like give him this glimpse at something like he has not had and it. And it puts this, no pun intended, drive in him that just, I don't know. I, I, I see it in him. I'm thinking of like the dinner scene where standards back and he's telling the story about how he met Irene and the driver's just like looking down at the ground. Like he's not even interacting. Uh, <laughs> I, there were just so many times where I'm like, I can, I so feel how this guy feels right now. I, I can sense how badly he wants something more fulfilling in his life. Yeah. Like the kind of the, the wishful thinking, the jealousy, the, can't I be him aspect of it. But also beyond that, just like he's recognizing how beautiful their love is. And he, it's almost like he, in that moment, he's gaining all of this might and desire to like keep the family together because like he loves her so much, you know? And like that adds to the loneliness, loneliness even more. (laughs) Yeah. His, uh, protector aspect, like I'll help him because it helps her. Yeah. It's, uh, it is cool. He had a lot more. I remember the character when I think back on the movie, I always was thinking back on him being a lot more stoic than <laughs> he actually is. Yeah. So right. watching it this time, that was kind of the thing that jumped out to me about the character was he was he was a bit more like human uh, than I remember in just the ways in which he was smiling and being like a little charming and funny. And a little silly in ways, but still very silent mm-hmm. until he starts to embody the scorpion more and more. And then you see a little bit of that. Oh, he's he's like the shark. You know, he's right. a he's a bad guy, even though he wants to be a good guy. He wants to be better. He wants to be the hero. He's more of the anti hero. 
Yeah, that's a huge part of the movie. I mean, the whole scorpion and the frog. I feel like that's the Chris special, like a motif that tells you so much. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the story of the scorpion, this frog is the scorpion jumps on the back of the frog and it's like a kamikaze situation. If he stains the frog, they'll go down and it really paints a picture of the driver and, you know, what ultimately happens to him. Like he's he's going to die saving these people. It's he, it's just his destiny. Yeah, yeah, because they're trying to cross, like, a thing of water, right? Yeah. Like, frog, take me across. And the frog's like, you're going to sting me. He's like, no, I won't. <laughs> like, why would I do that when it would kill us both? And the frog's like, yeah, you know, you're right. Why would that you? Would be, yeah, that would be insane to do. So hop on. And then immediately <laughs> yeah, stings him. And he's like, why? And he's like, I'm a scorpion. I don't know. Like, what do you want from me? <laughs> It's uh, it was also a big plot point, um, not a plot point, but a thematic point in the last season of Succession. They bring up the the scorpion and the frog. Oh, all right. Um, but it's cool how he does a little bit of that symbolism just through the jacket itself, and you have that line of dialogue about the shark and a shark being a villain. It's just little lines like that adding some of the the depth to the movie and fleshing it out. Uh, I do. <laughs> one thing that I also forgot is I remember when I saw this movie being like, all right, I didn't know Albert Brooks all that well, but what a performance <laughs> by Albert Brooks. <laughs> I knew Ron Perlman from uh, some things, but you know, Hellboy. mostly Hellboy. Yeah. And so it was nice just to see him. And I already knew he was good, like Blade Two, Hellboy, uh, a couple other movies. It was like, all right, it's cool to see him do this role. I, Albert Brooks was the one that really stood out for me. But I remember being like, wow, the guy who played Standard was yeah. so charismatic and had such presence. I wonder if he's going to go on to do things. <laughs> Completely forgot who it was. <laughs> I did not remember that it was Oscar Isaac. <laughs> oh, yeah. So when Standard came on, I was so excited to see him because I was hoping I would recognize him. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Oscar Isaac. It's Oscar Isaac? That's, oh, yeah. of course, no wonder why he was so good. <laughs> I mean, everybody really hits their marks in this movie. And Carrie Mulligan's just... Uh, you know Ryan Gosling, he, he's doing such great work, and he's a beautiful man, which which makes it easier. But like, just it's crazy that someone can sit there and not say anything, and like it's so watchable. But like, when the two of them are together and not saying anything, like I could watch that for an hour. Like those two just <laughs> staring at each other and like small smiles, and I just feel like so much communication is happening between them in that moment. And Carey Mulligan just does a great job of allowing. A different perspective on Ryan Gosling's character, like bringing something very warm to the movie and very needing, you know, there's just something there in her performance. That's, everybody's just kind of doing that. Like they're all bringing in these disparate elements that are surrounding the driver and, and putting all this pressure on him as he like tries to figure out, you know, who he is and where he's going to go in life and what direction he wants to take. And it's such a simple story done in, in such a unique way. Yeah. It's Carrie Mulligan had such a great rise in this period too. <laughs> um, oh yeah. Was she, Oh no, I'm thinking of Michelle Williams. I always mix them up and I feel terrible about it. <laughs> I was going to say Brokeback Mountain. 
Yeah, I yeah, I mean, right. I did the same. I was going to be like, was she in Carol? And I was like, no, no, that's that was Rooney Mara. Um, but I remember. Oh, yeah. an education. Yeah. And education was really the one that I think I mean, brothers to a certain degree, but not so much. That was more of like, a, hey, check out this person quickly. <laughs> and then public enemies. I don't remember all that. Oh, well. yeah. Michael Mann. But having that and then in education i remember being the one that was like all right this was the vehicle for uh carrie mulligan yeah she's so good in it it. yeah like okay we just need to watch what she does next uh never let me go i she did really well but i have some gripes about never let me go it breaks my heart it makes Mm -hmm. me cry so much it's just hits all of my narrative pet peeves oh yeah she's in (laughs) shame i totally forgot about that I never saw Shame. Um, I mean, it's not my favorite movie, but the people in the movie are doing good work. Yeah. And then uh, Gatsby. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Her going like Drive, Shame, Gatsby, uh, Suffragette. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Suffragette. And she was back with Oscar Isaac in Lu- Inside Llewellyn Davis. Which I never, I haven't seen that either. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. wow. I've always meant to. I always wanted to, but. Also not my favorite movie i I like Mm. i love the coen brothers but it's not my favorite movie of theirs yeah but she uh it seems like she's been relaxing for the last for like a little bit i I remember when she was in promising young woman i was like oh like i forgot about curry mulligan like how nice to have her back (laughs) absolutely um i did see there's been like a, a bunch of recent like online hype for saltburn which comes out soon I have so no idea what that is. I just saw the title and was like, all right, I'm in. Um, <laughs> directed and produced by Emerald Fennel, set in the mid-2000s. It follows a young college student who becomes infatuated with an ar- aristocratic schoolmate and his wealthy but eccentric family. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Um, but yeah, like her performance, she matches. I like there'd be a lot of personality types that wouldn't do well with Ryan Gosling in this movie and trying to match that energy. As you're saying, the small smiles that they're both so capable of. Like, I feel like Emma Stone could maybe pull off this role, but she's so much more suited to, (laughs) like, bouncing off... uh, The three other movies they did together. Yeah, Ryan Gosling and La La Land and uh, the other one that we just talked about. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. that like Carrie Mulligan feels so suited for this one. Man, you're making me realize like Ryan Gosling. He, I mean, I love him. He's an awesome actor, but maybe his real strength is like when he has somebody opposite of him that is matching what he's giving. Like as I'm thinking about all the movies I really like him in, he's doing amazing work with like Carrie Mulligan in this. He's doing amazing. Have you seen Song to Song, the Terrence Malick movie? No, with Natalie Portman. Oh Natalie no, Portman's I did in see. It. I did yeah. see Song to Song. I hated Song to Song. Oh, you did? Okay. Um, I liked it, but it wasn't my favorite Terrence Malick movie. Uh, but he's opposite Rooney Mara in that movie, and their energy is absolutely incredible. He's with Michelle Williams in Blue Valentine, uh, Margot Robbie and Robbie and, and Barbie. Like, I I think, I don't know. He's just really good at, like, creating an energy with, like, one other person. It's, that's really impressive. Eva Mendez in Place Beyond the Pines. 
Yeah. And then, of course, every movie he's done with Emma Stone, I haven't seen the the gangster one, whatever that one is, but I'm sure they're great. <laughs> yeah. Crazy Stupid Love, Gangster Squad. Gangster Squad, yeah. I saw Gangster Squad at like an outdoor screening in Australia, and then it started raining. So I have no idea what happened in the last 20 minutes of the movie. And it seems like I, the right way to watch that movie. Yeah, I didn't care. <laughs> like the world was just like, eh, here you go. Like, here's an out. Get going. <laughs> yeah, like get out of here. Well, then we're talking about all these like great like uh, female acting partners that he's had. But then you yeah. also have the nice guys. Oh, yeah, the and nice guys. The, the dynamic he has with Russell Crowe. Mm. It just seems he's like a very strong yeah, partner. That's interesting. In those movies, I still found him like fascinating in Blade Runner 2049, but it does feel like maybe he was missing uh, a partner in that movie that would elevate the role just like a little bit right. more. It, it's like a really long version of Drive, except Curry Mulligan's not there. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, and that makes like a huge difference. the The cinematography can only do so much, and for it didn't the story. do anything in that movie. So, you didn't like the cinematography in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I think, I mean, we've we've covered one Villeneuve movie, but I think his movies are absolutely ugly. <laughs> oh my god! How dare you say that about Roger Deakins? <laughs> I I think Dune is one of the ugliest movies I've ever seen. Is it just the lighting? Oh, Deacons did it do Dune. I just think there's no power to any of the images. That's insane to me. Every image in, like is pretty... I see something like... <laughs> oh, man. I see something like uh, an MCU movie, and that's where like there's no power in the images. Oh, me. I agree with you. Yeah. And They're on the same like, level to me. Dune has like the painting aspect to me, like the the Renaissance era, like painting aspect to me. Where it's I know what you mean, and I don't necessarily disagree with that. Like if it was just a still image that I was looking at, but as a moving image that's supposed to overtake me, I it's not doing it for me. Crazy. Did you did you like the cinematography in Sicario? I have to watch Sicario again. Um, it's okay. one. I don't remember really enjoying back in the day, but you and Jordan have talked about how great it is so much that I'm finally like, all right, I'll watch it. Like, maybe I'll like it. That movie yeah. to me, just by nature, I think suits Phil Nev a little better. I just don't think he, I mean, you love it and everyone seems to love it, but when he gets these big sci-fi settings, like I, I don't know. I just, for whatever reason, I think his eye is not doing what I need it to. Like, I'm not feeling engrossed by everything in a way that i think sicario probably does a little better it's like it's a little more of a contained setting it's real it's visceral there's it's like a little more rugged you know like i I feel like something like dune and blade runner 2049 are going for like big grandose you know feels like sophisticated in a way in a way that like it's just not doing I'm, i'm just not getting it you know yeah, I'm wondering, it has me wondering about, like, the use of, I really like zoomed out, not, like, entirely landscape shots and everything, but I mm-hmm. really love the idea of that visual scope and distance mm-hmm. and the scale it provides. I'm wondering if that feels more empty to you in a lot of those cases, as opposed to, like, a Whoa. closer... 
the, shot selection. One of my favorite movies ever is Lawrence of Arabia, and that is a standard shot in that movie. And and, and I think that's a key film for me to paint the difference. Like to me, Lawrence of Arabia, this man in this desert. He he says at the very beginning. He looks out and he talks about how like the desert is this this canvas that is waiting to be painted upon, you know, and he gives personality and meaning to the desert. And as he travels through it and tries to find who he is, I I just, I get that sense of something bigger than myself when I see it. And it does nothing to do with like machines and monsters and war. Like it's, it's the ideas and the mood attached to it. And I just, it, and I understand all, all those ideas are there in something like Blade Runner and 2049 and Dune, but I, I just don't think, I mean, Villeneuve's not a director I like, and he's not exploring those topics in a way that I think captures me like something Lawrence of Arabia would do. I uh, have never uh, seen <laughs> it. I got to say, of Arabia. if you um, ever come to Chicago or if I ever come to Austin, uh, my Lauren, my cop, my 4K copy of Lawrence of Arabia will be there, and we're going to spend four hours watching it. <laughs> Beautiful. I, I have you'll a 4K TV now, so uh, and you know what? We, we can, can watch Dune after, <laughs> <laughs> just so you can smirk at me the entire time as I go. Oh, no, uh, I don't think that. I mean, I understand Dune speaks to people. I don't mean to completely disparage it. People find a lot of power in it. I just, you know, for what I'm looking for, it's just not doing it. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Well, so the mask, so should we talk Should we talk about the mask quickly <laughs> and the ending? I, I feel like we have to talk about the mask that we're coming full circle here of Modigliani movie inquiries. <laughs> yeah. So I always took the mask, like as you said, the first introduction to it is when uh, he's on set and we see him on set for the first time and you see the actor in the right side of the frame who's like a bald cop actor getting his makeup and you imagine is one of the leads in the show. Right. Uh, they say something like that, right? You're, God, I wish it had been now, Brad Pitt sitting in that chair. <laughs> you're now doing the stunt for like a main character kind of thing. And then you see him on the other side getting the mask on. So it already sets up this idea that the mask is him, his Hollywood look. It's his goal of one day being the guy in the other side of the mirror in some way, like the opposite side of the duality. So mm-hmm. what's it mean then when he goes and gets the mask for this job when he doesn't need it? He's he's already right. kind of at this point where he knows that things are going south. And it's not like he needs to protect his identity because they're going to come after him. He's killing everybody. Mm-hmm. So if they see his face, does that matter? Which means the mask has a lot more of a vibe Symbolic. to it yeah symbolism to it and it's essentially him living this fantasy that he has of merging what he's doing in hollywood as like an actor with his real life which is something we've been seeing him kind of increasingly do throughout the movie even his little spiel that he gives people the five minutes (laughs) you have me for five minutes a minute before a minute after it's a script that he's reading he's playing a character He's doing just the little thing to feel a little more elevated, bringing that Hollywood aspect into his real life, Uh, which is also what makes the kiss in the elevator stomp so great because that's also so like Hollywood. (laughs) So you have this Mm -hmm. dovetail of like the action movie with the like the romance 
and then them merging in that moment of the elevator. Uh, but when he goes and puts the mask on, it's something that symbolizes so deeply his Hollywood character. And then he's using it to go after who's essentially like the studio executive of the film or the person in charge of this little microcosm that he's in mm. and taking them out. <clears throat> so there's something to that identity angle and him getting into character, playing a character that you can then apply if you want to go deeper down the Hollywood stuff. But on the broader aspect, it's just the mask connecting to the Hollywood, connecting to identity and bringing some of that fantastic elements of Hollywood into his real life. Yeah, I love all that. And I think you're really speaking to why I love Nicholas Whiting Refn as a director is that he is... First and foremost, I said it earlier and I'll say it again, he's an artist. Like he, I think one of the things that may frustrate people about this movie, because I remember back in the day, you know, I loved Drive and I would go to the IMDb forums, you know, the boards. And this was one of those movies that drove people nuts, that people hated. And I think they couldn't stand stuff like this, that like, why would he put on a mask? Like, this is so silly. Uh, thinking about the moment, you were mad about way back in 2011 when he, Ryan Gosling like sneaks back behind the door for like no reason at all. That makes no sense. And uh, we've talked about it on this show. We talked about it famously, I would say. Uh, at some point, it will become famous, our uh, extensive Fast and Furious <laughs> marathon <laughs> that we did. How I, I love when movies, I, I view movies as a painting in a way where it doesn't always necessarily matter if something's real or logical. It just matters what it looks like, what it says about the movie and its ideas and its characters and how it informs us of what the movie's ultimately doing and the deeper meaning is. And to me, these shots have a lot to do with that. Like, it's crazy that the driver puts on that mask. Like, that has to cloud his vision. <laughs> like, that is not going to make <laughs> this job any easier. Yet he does it. And when he does it, we make all these, we start making all these connections about the symbolism of the movie and how he views himself as this heroic figure, how he's trying to like embody somebody bigger than himself. That to me is all that matters in a moment like this. Like, that's why it's so cool when he slowly walks up to the door and the camera's slowly zooming in and that song is playing in the background. Um, the, it's almost like an opera song. Like it mm. just looks and feels cool because it is and because it's saying so much at the same time. Like it's not just some empty gesture. It means something and it looks beautiful while it's doing that. Like that's why I love Refn is he's committed to making his movies look beautiful first and then like kind of finding the meaning within. Yeah, and he accomplishes that in spades with this. It's so the thing that I've come to appreciate so much recently, and I feel like maybe it maybe it's just the era of films, or maybe when I was younger, I was getting to like watch so many new movies for the first time that now I'm watching so much stuff that's mm -hmm. uh, not the the established cream of the crop. Right. So you're going through a lot more that's a little bland more bland totally uh but it felt like there was a lot stronger sense of style and artistic voice in movies uh up through the mid aughts oh chris you are speaking my language and that sometime really in the last like decade mm -hmm. 
we've seen a huge drop off in artistic perspective and voice in Hollywood features. I mean, we're still getting it in a lot of the independent movies, the art house films, of course, but it just feels like it's harder to come by. And so a movie like this at the time didn't stand out to me all that much in that way. But now 12 years, 12 years later, 11 years, 12 years later, uh, yes, it feels refreshing to have somebody that has such a stylistic um, presence. Yeah, I mean, that's what inevitably happens. Like the more movies you see, you know, you and I, we've seen thousands of movies, and and I watch a lot of old movies, and I and I see all of these legendary directors and actors who really and cinematographers <laughs> and people who did lighting. Like I I see a, all of these motions that old movies went through that clearly paved the way for a lot of the directors I love directors like Refn who have such intense style um, that I I think I kind of naturally gravitate towards people like that who aren't afraid to look silly Um, and their first and foremost concern is just like making something look good and making something watchable in that way that's just like it's so it's just so beautiful that you can't believe it that you're watching it um i I definitely you know and we watch thousands of movies the more and more we watch movies i feel the same way like movies these days and you know that's not for everybody that isn't necessarily me saying that like movies need to do this but if that's what you're looking for year after year it feels like we get it less and less and year after year i feel myself going back to old movies more and more that are giving me that um so again, Drive, for that reason, Drive is a special movie to me. Like it was a movie that at the time, like I didn't fully get it, you know, and I hadn't watched as many movies then as I had now. But even back then, like I knew I was experiencing something different. Each time I revisited it, it doesn't get old or stale or anything. Like it becomes more alive. <laughs> it, it stands out even more compared to like what I'd seen in the past year, you know? Yeah, I get it completely. Uh, do you think he's really alive at the end? Yeah, I think that's... um. That was something I was thinking about in this viewing. I guess, obviously, I've thought about it before because I'm sure that's a theory that's been floated around. Um, But uh, it definitely fits with the whole angle we're talking about and, like, whether or not it's this parallel for Hollywood and a movie and all that. Like, maybe at the very end, it finally goes Maholan Drive and, like, he does die. And, like, when he drives off, that's just him, like, on the other side, you know, like, living out the, the ending of the movie. Yeah, that I I mean, granted, this is only my second time watching it. I haven't seen discussion about it. It's just as it was happening, I was like, oh, I could see people yeah. thinking that it went a little surreal at the end and that him driving away and then driving on that dark road is just in some ways representative of him driving into the afterlife. Yeah. In, the, in a way. But there's also, to your, I think, speaking to how you interpret it or not even interpret it, how you look at movies that gets at just the human element too, of that. It can represent the death of the life that he thought he'd have in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. His career in Hollywood is over. His Hollywood dream is over. And he's doing that drive symbolically into his next life, the afterlife of that into whatever awaits. And as Bernie tells him, you're going to be looking over the shoulder for the rest of your life. Like, 
good luck. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and then stabs him. But uh, there is something, whether you want to take it as literal or just symbolic, there is that sense that there's been uh, a death. And even, you know, just the death of the potential romance he has with Irene and the fact that, you know, maybe he'll find something else out there, right. but also, eh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, it only adds to the sadness of, and the loneliness of the film <laughs> that he kind of, whether or not he drives away at the end by himself to die, or like he actually is on the other side of death and is never returning. Like the movie just ends with nobody in a good place. Really? You're, you're either dead or you're alone. Yeah, I, like he didn't even take the money to give to Irene or anything. Yeah. It's just like leaves it with the body, which I guess is like in some ways like getting her out of it. Yeah, now that totally. everybody's dead and like there's the money can be taken by whoever. Right. It's no longer like her problem and he's leaving the scene. I could also see somebody like with the idea of there's the clear superhero connection through the song Real Hero mm-hmm. and the fact that he kind of acts superhero in this way that the heroes usually never die even when they take damage so you could just view it as you know this is a superhero who survived you could view the scorpion on his back not as like he's a scorpion he's a bad guy but almost as like superman's s it there's yeah. spider-man's spider batman's bats he's the scorpion <laughs> and yeah. he's going off to his next adventure and who knows what it's going to be, but like the hero lives on. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a, a glass half full, totally. upbeat, heroic angle to the movie, but also <laughs> uh, glass half empty, existential, look how sad everybody is, uh, anti-Hollywood. Yeah. Angle. I mean, I, I wrote pretty much the exact thing in the movie guide and how the ending, the glass half full is that he, he drives away achieving what he wanted he did become a hero in quotes in a way by getting irene and benicio out of this situation even if it costed him his own life like he did it but at the same time he doomed these people to to be alone like they have nobody in their life like he didn't need to ever get involved with this um there's just there's multiple ways to look at his situation and what he did and whether any of it was truly heroic yeah yeah i like yeah I mean, Standard was caught up. It was going to go south for Standard no matter what. But at the same time. I I just think a big part of it is like, you know, the whole movie is about consequences and how there aren't any real second chances. Like Standard even has a line where he says that, you know, how Mm. he comes back and he's at the party and he's like, I get a second chance. And like, not everybody gets those. I think the movie is kind of sadly about like, you don't really get second chances when like you make bad decisions and like things happen. You know, Ryan Gosling, because of the life he leads, he gets sucked into this entire situation he, because like of all the people he's involved with, they find out who he is so easily and they're able to like track him down and Irene down. Like, I think ultimately the movie's about that. And as much as he wants to propel himself and find a new direction, like sometimes you're pulled down by your past decisions. Yeah. And, I mean, they mentioned like the whole arc with Brian Cranston and Bernie's yeah. 
uh, Bernie's always like, you know, Shannon's unlucky. He like bets on the wrong things, like bad things happen. There's that luck element too. Like mm-hmm. you just did it, get your break. But what a simp Shannon is for Bernie. <laughs> like, dude, just like shut up. Yeah. He really like brought the whole thing crashing down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy, uh, yeah, he doesn't really <laughs> offer much throughout the movie, does he? No, I like it's good performance by Cranston. Sure, like, yeah, it's crazy how like the smaller roles from like Cranston, Isaac, Christina Hendricks, yeah, all have such kind of gravitational performances. Totally, yeah. I mean, that's a another strength of this movie. Like every character, I guess we talked about that, but they have a real presence. Like they mean something in this movie. They're real people, except they're not. <laughs> uh, All right. All right. We did it. Drive. That's drive. That's I'm glad it. I didn't have to scream at you. Yeah. Let's drive away from here. <laughs> okay. Drive was now. What What was the next one you said we were going to do? <laughs> La La Land. La La Land. Oh, back to back Gosling. Is this three Goslings in a row? What was the last one? Barbie? Oh, well, no, we did Oppenheimer. We did. Three out of four, okay. though. Three out of four. I, I'm i not arguing with that. I like it. <laughs> the man's a star. If only he had been in Mad God. <laughs> Could you imagine? God, I can. And the Fast and Furious movies, just all of them. That would be a get for them. It, make but it happen. He's in the Fast and Furious movies, but he's Ken. Please, please. <laughs> Please make it happen. This this has to fall under some corporate umbrella. Like somebody must own these two entities. Like just make it happen. Yeah. Uh, just give the people what they want. <laughs> okay. La La Land. Yeah. I I watched it recently, so I don't need to watch it again. I like that. Yeah. I uh, I also watched it recently, but we'll watch it again. Um, oh, just as like a second viewing. Man, should I? Maybe I should. Maybe that's. I mean, you've already seen it multiple times, right? I've seen it. No, that was the second time I had seen it when I watched it recently. Okay, I've seen it the one time. Uh, I feel like I need to have like a second viewing just to see, you know, maybe I have a, a change of mind like with Drive, but... All right, all right, maybe I will. <laughs> if you, you know what you should do? Instead of watching La La Land, watch Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've I've watched Whip recently and La La Land recently and I have no desire to continue down the Damien Chazelle rabbit, rabbit trail. I'm going to make a lot of comparisons to Babylon. The La La Isn't it like three episode. hours long? I just can't imagine yeah. sitting through one of that guy's movies for three hours. I think it might be the only one that you possibly like, but you probably <laughs> won't. <laughs> we'll see. I might. Okay. Sure. I'll probably watch it. Twist oh, your hate arm. Watch it. Yeah, hate watch it. Hate watch it, Travis. Let it flow through you. <laughs> okay, until La La Land. See ya. Bye.